Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 31, 2 Samuel chapters 20 and 21. Well, this uh, 20th chapter of 2 Samuel that's often called Sheba's Rebellion or Revolt kind of shapes today's lesson. Now, we got a little way into it last week as we found the Northern Ten Tribe Coalition that this chapter tends to refer to as, as Israel having a contentious argument with the Two Tribe Coalition that's usually called Judah. And this fiery meeting took place at Gilgal, the place where David was re-coronated as king of Israel. Now, Shiva, the Benjamite, is regarded in this episode as a scoundrel, an Ish Belial, and the one who attempted to foment the civil war. But the issue of this attempted civil war is briefly interrupted in verse 3, with a mention of the ten concubines that David left behind at his palace when he fled Jerusalem a few months earlier. And here we find that these violated members of David's harem would be, through no fault of their own, regarded by David as damaged goods and unworthy of his continued relationship with them. So they were set aside. They were reasonably cared for but they were treated as living widows. In other words, they would never know a man again. They would die childless. So let's reread a portion of uh, 2 Samuel chapter 20 as we kind of get our bearings for today. We're just going to read from verses 4 through 13. And that's on page 357 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. The king said to Amasa, Summon the men of Judah to come to me within three days, and you be here too. Amasa went to summon the men of Judah, but he took longer than the time he had been given. And David said to Abishai, Sheba the son of Bichri is going to do to us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, so that he won't take over fortified cities and escape us. With him went Yoav's men the Kriti and the Politi and all the experienced soldiers and they left Yerushalayim in pursuit of Sheba the son of Bikri. Now on arrival at the big rock in Gibbon, Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them and Joab was wearing his battle clothes over which he had girded a belt with a sheathed sword. But as he came forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, is it going well with you, my brother? Then with his right hand, Joab took Amasa by the beard to kiss him. Amasa took no notice of the sword in Joab's hand, so Joab stabbed him in the groin. His insides poured out onto the ground. He died without being stabbed a second time. Joab and Abishai, his brother, continued in pursuit of Sheva, the son of Bikri, and one of Joab's young men standing by Joab said, Whoever is on Joab's side, whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the middle of the road. 
so that as the troops came by, they all halted there. And when the man saw that all the people were standing still, he dragged Amasa off the road into the field and threw a cloak over him. Once he had been removed from the road, all the troops went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bikri. Well, David had promised that he would elevate Amasa, the general in charge of Absalom's ill-fated military, to be his own general of the army, and in so doing replaced Joab, who had participated in the killing of Abishalom. And having done that, verse 4 has the king telling Amasa to form up the men of Judah into an army and then bring them to Jerusalem. Now the purpose, of course, was as as a force to counter the tribal army from the north that Sheva was attempting to gather. But Amasa was given only three days to accomplish this task. Now one has to wonder why David would demand such a large undertaking to be accomplished in such a, such a short time. Right? Because by all accounts it was unreasonable, it was unrealistic to think that Amasa could ride around all of the various cities and villages throughout all of Judah and and ready an army in 72 hours. Likely David was simply being impetuous or impatient. We have no record of Amasa even objecting to this impossible assignment as Joab certainly would have done. So it was inevitable that, as verse 5 says, Amasa missed his appointment. Thus, when Amasa didn't show up with his men in three days, David immediately turned to Abishai, Joab's brother, another of his long-time field commanders. And he told him that it was urgent that he go after Sheba before he caused more damage than Absalom had, had done. Now David was so anxious to short-circuit Sheva's anti-government actions that he instructed Abishai to take only the much smaller forces that David here calls his servants. In other words, these men who are usually identified as the Paliti and the Kariti were more or less David's private army. These were men who were especially loyal to him and who were essentially a kind of a small standing army of professional soldiers, not at all like the militia of tribesmen that Amasa was instructed to try and go and round up. Apparently, Joab also had a group of professional soldiers that he had separately maintained. And so Abishai took them as well to pursue Sheba. Now verse 8 explains that a few days later at Gibeon, uh, a city in the tribal territory of, this is Benjamin, tribal territory of Benjamin, um, Amasa finally showed up with some number of militia troops to accompany him and probably, to his great surprise, there stood Joab, the deposed former commander of David's army. So get the picture. While David had dismissed Joab as his general of the army, Joab didn't leave. 
He didn't lead the army. He apparently didn't give up his authority either. In fact, the troops under his direct command stayed loyal to Joab, probably figuring that if the past was any indication, this situation was going to be short-lived anyway. So now we see that the reason that David sent Amasa scurrying around the countryside of Judah looking to reform the militia is because it was obvious to David and to Amasa that the professional fighting men of Israel had no interest in serving under Amasa. Instead, staying loyal to Joab and to his brother Abishai. And if Amasa was to have any army at all, it would have to consist of whatever farmers and herders and tradesmen he could round up on short notice. Well, Joab put on a happy face for Amasa and behaved as though all was well. And to further put Amasa at ease, Joab approached him and he asked, Is all well with you, my brother? This affectionate greeting would have rung true to Amasa, as indeed Amasa and Joab were first cousins, which was a very close relationship in that era. And to further disarm Amasa, we're told that Joab reached out and grabbed Amasa's beard and he kissed him. Now the grabbing of the beard was a sure sign of playful friendliness. And no doubt, the slightly worried Amasa felt a lot more at ease with this, this warm greeting and this manly Middle Eastern traditional kiss on the cheek or the, or the neck that would have accompanied it. But it was actually all a murderous deception that harkens back to earlier times when Joab then too refused to allow any rivals to live. Thus the narrator tells us that Joab was in full battle dress. He was wearing a sword when he greeted Amasa. So while at first glance that kind of would have made Amasa a little wary, Joab's warm and brotherly brotherly demeanor kind of calmed his fears. So now Joab reaches out with his right hand, no doubt Joab was right-handed, and used that to playfully grab Amasa's beard. And as he did so, his sword kind of slipped silently out of its scabbard and fell to the ground. And using his free left hand, Joab picked up that sword and he jammed it quickly into the abdomen of the startled Amasa, essentially disemboweling him. The blow was so swift and on target that Yoav didn't even need to withdraw his sword and thrust it in to his cousin a second time. But there was another reason that Yoav didn't stab him again. He wanted Amasa to live just a little longer. A soldier usually finished off his opponent as a sort of kindness so that the pain and the agony didn't linger. But Joab wanted Amasa to suffer as an example for anyone daring to think they could take Joab's position as second in command of all Israel. So now things were back to normal. Yoav and his brother Abishai were in command of David's forces and they resumed their pursuit of Sheva. One of Joab's men yelled out to the militiamen 
that Amasa had brought with him that whoever was on Joab's side was really on David's side. And so they should now follow Joab as they had intended to follow Amasa. In other words, what happened, what happened to Amasa is irrelevant to the military operation. They were never going to be fighting for Amasa per se anyway, but rather for their king, David. So since Joab has always been David's general, the militia should just continue on as before and consider it as serving their king. Well, by now, Amasa was a gruesome sight. His death pangs left him writhing in his own blood and innards in the middle of the road. And the, the militia, as the militia approached, the sight horrified them. Instinctively, I think you can imagine yourself in this position, just kind of instinctively, they, they stop and stared, transfixed, kind of, and unable to turn their gaze away. And so fear began to overtake them. Not so much because they were concerned for Amasa, but because they could suddenly picture themselves in that same condition as a result of fighting Sheva and his men. One of Joab's men, who was obviously an experienced professional soldier, he instantly understood what was happening. So he dragged that corpse well off the road and he covered over the body with a, with a cloak so as to avoid mass panic. Well, the troops now headed <coughs> excuse me, um, towards the far north from Gibeon, on up this direction, up north, um, among the several fortresses that were built near Lake Merom. And finally they tracked Sheba to Abel. Um, or rather, Abel Beit Makkah. Now, Shavon, apparently a mere handful of men, took shelter inside of this walled city, no doubt by threatening the local residents. And Abel is, is Hebrew for brook or, or stream. So this city was called the House of Ma'acha by the brook. The place is best identified today as being about 12 miles north of the Hula Lake, which is in this region. Alright, and um, probably just a little bit east, just a little east of Tel Dan, which is about right where that C or A is up there. And we're told that Sheba had traveled all through the northern tribal territories, those whom he purported to represent, gathering up men for his army of rebellion. But it would appear that while he gathered some, it was mostly men from his own family. We're told that the Berim joined him. And, and, and later these same men are referred to as the Berites or the Bichrites. And recall in verse 1 that Sheba is identified as the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. Thus all the terms Berim, Berites, Bichrites, these are all variant spellings of Sheba's clan's name a clan that was likely currently the largest and most influential of all the, the several clans that formed the tribe of Benjamin. Well, this fortified city with high defensive walls had to be attacked siege style. So we're told that Joab's troops built up an earthen ramp against the city wall. 
Now our complete Jewish Bible and a few other Bible versions will speak of a moat surrounding the city. The word moat is simply not there in the original. Okay, It was added in medieval times. Um, it was usual to have a moat. Um, a um, water-filled canal dug around the bottom of a fortress. If anything, the city of Abel Beth Makkah may have dug a trench. No question about that. All right, um, but to characterize it as a moat would be quite a stretch. And then once the ramp was built, Joab's troops began bashing at the top part of the wall to gain entry. Let's start reading at verse 14 and finish off the chapter. Verse 14. Shavah went throughout all the tribes of Israel to Avel and Beit Makkah to all the Barim. They assembled and followed him and Yoav's troops came and put him under siege in Avel of Beit Makkah. They put up a ramp in the moat against the city wall and all the people with Joab battered the wall in order to bring it down. And then a wise woman in the city shouted, Listen! Listen! Please tell Yoav, come over here so that I can speak with you. And he approached her and the woman asked, Are you Joab? And he answered, I am. And she said to him, Listen to what your servant has to say. And he answered, I'm listening. And then she said, In the old days, they used to say, They will ask advice at Avel. That would end the discussion. And we are among those in Israel who are peaceful and faithful. Why are you destroying a city and a mother and Israel? Why swallow up the inheritance of Adonai? And Joab answered, Heaven forbid! Heaven forbid that I should swallow or destroy anything. That's not how it is. Rather, a man from the hills of Ephraim, Sheba the son of Bikri, has raised his hand against the king, against David. Just turn him over to me. I'll leave the city. And the woman said to Joab, All right, his head will be thrown over to you, over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people with her wise plan. They cut off the head of Sheva, the son of Bikri, and threw it out to Yoav. So he sounded the shofar. They left the city, sending each man to his tent, while Yoav returned to the king in Jerusalem. Once again, Joab was commander over the whole army of Israel, while Baniah, the son of Yehoyoda, was over the Creti and the Politi. Adoram was in charge of forced labor. Yehoshaphat, the son of Achlud, was secretary of state, and Shva was recorder. Sadok and Eviatar were Kohanim, and Ira, the Yairi, was David's Kohen, David's priest. Well, as the residents of Avel began to realize that they were likely going to die right along with Sheva and his men, they decided to take some action to prevent it. As we're told that suddenly a wise woman appeared on the ramparts and called down for a parley with Joab. Now this wise woman is in Hebrew called a Chakom Isha. 
right? And there, there is no consensus on what her actual or official role might have been. She probably wasn't a prophetess, which was an official role and title, but rather just a woman well-known for her wise and, if not godly, counsel. So she was held in high esteem by the citizenry. any case, she calls down to the troops below. She asks for Joab. Joab responds in a respectful way to this woman, strongly hinting that he knew of her, that he had an unusual respect for her, because once he identifies himself, she demands to know, are you listening? And the word used here for listening is shama, from the root word shema. And the meaning is, like the other one, here on a bay. So this isn't an issue of Joab merely being asked if he could discern this woman's voice that may have been a little bit faint from atop the wall, but rather it is if Joab's ready to seriously consider and do what she advises. Well, verse 18 says the woman begins her counsel to Joab by telling him that since time immemorial, it has been proverbial that people would journey to this city, this Abel Beit Macha, to seek wise counsel on difficult matters. And the counsel given was considered as so certain to be correct that once given, all debate ended. So the idea is that there was an ancient custom that some of the citizens of this city were, were of a family or maybe a cult that was considered as all as an almost infallible source of wisdom and advice. So the wise woman's message to Joab is, don't disregard what I'm telling you or you're going to be sorry. Joab didn't seem to reject that notion. Well, the Chakom Isha proceeds to tell Joab that this is known as a peaceful city and, and one that's always been loyal to the king. So to attack it is just wrong. And further, this is an important mother city. And to destroy it would be an even greater crime. She adds more drama then by saying, Why swallow up the inheritance of Yehovah? Now a mother city means a principal city. The, the ancient system of urban planning... <coughs> was that you would have a principal city, usually a walled fortress, and then there would be several nearby villages that depended on the city, and they were usually under the authority of the city's king. And then together, they formed a community and a a local economy. Now, either formally or informally, they also cooperated for the local defense, so that the attack on one was an attack on all. And in case of a attack from a powerful enemy, the local villagers would flee to the mother city where there were walls for protection. Well, when the wise woman said that Joab was in the process of destroying the inheritance of Yehovah, she was using Torah terms. And it was referring to the Hebrew people who lived there. Because the Israelite people and the Israelite land are called by God His inheritance. That's why the Lord protects His people, protects His land, 
with such fervor. Why it is the utmost folly, why it's so offensive towards God to stand against His people or to stand against His land in ancient or modern times. They are His inheritance. That means they are His holy property. You don't mess with God's holy property. At least not without severe consequences, even if those consequences might not happen immediately. Therefore, Joab reacts to her accusation couched in a question with, Heaven forbid! I mean, even the warrior general Joab, who had just ruthlessly murdered Amasa for nothing more than than personal ambition, understands the seriousness of misappropriating or destroying that which belongs to the Lord. So basically, the wise woman is saying to Joab, why didn't you inquire of us first, before you began a siege, about whether we were standing with Sheva or intended to protect him. Not to do so is a direct violation of Torah law. And that itself brings a punishment by God. Listen to Deuteronomy 20 verses 10 through 12. When you advance on a town to attack it, first offer it terms of peace. If it accepts the terms for peace and opens its gates to you, then all the people there are to be put to forced labor and work for you. However, if they refuse to make peace with you, but prefer to make war against you, then you can put it under a siege. That's a direct Torah law. So Joab says, very well then. If you'll just turn Sheva over to us, we'll leave. The wise woman responds, all right. His head will be thrown over the wall to you. (laughs) Negotiations ended. That's what happened. The townspeople killed Sheva, gave his head as proof to Joab. Joab identified the head as Sheva's, blew the shofar to signal the battle to cease, and everybody went home. This is why I said last week, it's probably a bit too strong to term this episode as a rebellion. In the end, it really didn't amount to much more than one man's crusade against David. And he was dispatched in short order, not by a soldier, but by a group of townspeople led by a woman. Well, the final few verses of this chapter gives us a listing of David's cabinet as constituted at the time of Sheba's revolt. And we get a similar list to this back in chapter 8 from an earlier time of David's reign. And while the list is substantially the same, it shouldn't surprise us that there are some additions and some subtractions. Well, in a nutshell, David's inner circle at this time looked like this. Yoav was once again the top general of the army after he had murdered Amasa. He did have some number of professional soldiers that formed a a very small standing army. But when any kind of serious threat developed, the army had to be conscripted from the Israelite civilians as a militia. Benyah 
commanded a small group of soldiers that was mainly David's palace guard. Aduram was the administrator in charge of forced labor used for government projects. The labor force consisted of captured prisoners of war, almost entirely non-Hebrews, but probably a few Israelites as well who had committed some offense against the state. Later on, it seems, that King Solomon routinely began to add Hebrew forced laborers to the pool for his ambitious building programs. Yehoshaphat was the recorder. In Hebrew, his position is called Zahar, which means to remember. Now, our complete Jewish Bible says that he was the Secretary of State, which I think is quite incorrect. Okay. I find no indication that his job was ever as Israel's chief diplomat. Rather, he was more or less the royal historian okay, who oversaw treaties and rulings, probably the feats of, of the king, his wars, his battle victories, that he recorded for posterity. Sheva was the sofer, or sofer, which is translated as scribe. He probably created certain legal documents. Now, Sadok and Eviatar were the high priests, meaning that still at this time, David maintained, no doubt for political expediency, two high priests. Solomon would remedy this decidedly wrong situation by removing Eviatar, who was not of the legitimate line of high priests descending from Aaron. Finally, there is Erah, who was David's priest. Now, early in David's reign, we're told he used a son as a family priest. Now, at this time, it was somebody else. And the fact that Erah is called a Yairite probably means he was from the area of Gilead. No matter. There's little doubt that this person was not a Levite. It was customary for a king in the Middle East to employ a family priest, just as it was for wealthy and aristocratic families to do the same thing. However, for a king of Israel to do this was a terrible thing. In fact, the rabbis tend to say that the reason that this infamous fact of a family priest is mentioned here is because it is directly related to the famine that comes next in in the scriptures. That is, the rabbis say that David, having this illegitimate family priest, had at least as much to do with the famine happening as did the stated cause of Saul's family unjustly killing certain people from the town of Gibeah. In both cases, this was divine retribution for wrongdoing by Israel's king. Well, as we end this chapter, it's important to take notice just how corrupted with Canaanite pagan ways was David's administration, especially as concerned the priesthood. Not only did he have two high priests but a family priest as well, which meant that David was involved in some kind of unrecorded sacrificial rituals that were completely unauthorized by the Torah. 
Let's move on to chapter 21. Second Samuel chapter 21. In David's time, there was a famine that lasted three years. And David consulted Adonai. And Adonai said, It's because of Saul and his blood-stained house, because he put to death the people of Gibeon. And the king summoned the Gibeonites and said to them, These Gibeonites were not part of the people of Israel, but from the remnant of the Amorites. And the people of Israel had sworn to them. But Saul and his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah sought to exterminate them. And David said to the Gibeonites, What should I do for you? What should I, with what should I make atonement so that you will be able to bless Adonai's heritage? And the Gibeonites said to him, Our dispute with Saul can't be resolved with silver or gold. And we don't have the right to put anyone in Israel to death. He said, So, what do you say I should do for you? And they answered the king, The man who ruined us, who schemed against us so that we would cease to exist anywhere in Israel's territory, have seven of his male descendants handed over to us. We'll put them to death by hanging before Adonai in Giva of Saul, whom Adonai chose. And the king said, I will hand them over. But, The king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath before Adonai between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Michal, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mechlati, and handed them over to the Gibeonites who hanged them on the hill before Adonai. All seven died. They were put to death during the first days of the harvest season at the beginning of the barley harvest. Ritzpah, the daughter of Yah, took sackcloth, spread it out toward a cliff for herself and stayed there from the beginning of the harvest until water was poured out on the bodies from the sky not letting the birds land on them during the day or the wild animals at night. David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Yah, the concubine of Saul, had done. So David went and took the bones of Saul, the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the open square of Beit Shan, where the Philistines had hanged them at the time the Philistines had killed Saul at Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan his son. They also gathered the bones of those who had been hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan his son in the territory of Benjamin in Selah, in the tomb of Kish, his father. They did everything the king ordered. Only after that was... Uh, Only after that was God prevailed on to show mercy to the land. Once again the Philistines made war on Israel. David went down with his servants and fought against the Philistines, but David began to get tired. Yishbanov, one of the sons of the giant, said that he would kill David. His spear weighed seven pounds. He was wearing new armor. But Abishai, the son of Zeriah, came to David's rescue by striking the Philistine and killing him. Then David's men swore to him, You must no longer go out with us to battle in order not to quench the lamp of Israel. 
And a while after this, there was again war with the Philistines at Gov uh, Sibkai, the the uh, Hushite was killed. Um, one of the sons of the giant, and there was more war with the Philistines at Gob. And Elchanan, the son of Yare Orgim, the Betlachmi, killed Goliath the Gittite, Goliath the Gittite, who had a spear with a shaft like a weaver's beam. There was again war at Gath, where there was a belligerent man with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, twenty-four in all. He too was son of a giant. And when he mocked Israel, Jonathan the son of Shema, David's brother, killed him. These four were sons of the giant in Gath. They fell at the hands of David and his servants. Well, this chapter begins a section of what some scholars call an appendix to the book of 2 Samuel. It seems to be a collection of miscellaneous information about David and his administration that didn't fit chronologically very neatly anywhere else. So the first thing to understand is that these various happenings that I just read to you are not in chronological order. And that they are at the end of this book has nothing to do with when they occurred. Now a second important context for studying this chapter is this. Especially when we read the part about David's solution for the famine, we need to recognize that what we'll see is a mixture of Torah law, Middle Eastern customs, and pagan superstitions. It is not recognizing this tragic reality that has caused many a preacher or Bible teacher to fumble around in this chapter trying to find some loophole or technicality to explain David's actions that many presume to be God's direct instructions to him. Thus many Christian scholars have spent a lot of time apologizing for God for what went on here and explaining that as a result of the coming of Messiah, God's changed. Now he'd never in our time order such a course of action. Well, the first important miscellaneous piece of data from this section of 2 Samuel is that at some point David dealt with a famine that lasted for three consecutive years. And this famine undoubtedly occurred fairly early in David's reign. Now, we need to understand that to experience a famine means that there was insufficient food for the local population. It does not mean that there was no food. It means there wasn't enough to go around. And so malnutrition would be the result for the poorest, and in the worst cases, starvation for some. But nearly inevitably especially in the area of Canaan, this lack of food had to do with a drought. The only other typical reason other than for drought for a famine would be pestilence. And when that happens, it's almost always just for a single growing season, not even for a full year. So we can safely assume 
that there was a severe lack of rain and the crops, orchards, and vineyards failed to produce very well as a result. Further, other parts of this episode support this conclusion of three straight years of too little rain. Now, a year of not enough rain was not unusual in Canaan. Even two straight years of less than average rainfall wasn't rare. But after three years, David decided that this was sufficiently beyond normal that he should approach Jehovah and inquire if this was merely a normal, although challenging, climate cycle or if this was a divinely caused calamity. And this consultation with the Lord would have been through his high priests. It would not have been direct communication. And the means of communication would either have been lots or the Urim and Tumim stones. David did not have direct communication with Jehovah the way that Moses did. And Jehovah responds that indeed there is a divine cause for the absence of rain. It's because of what Saul and his household did when they put to death the people of Gibeon. So from God's perspective, the issue is blood guilt. Holiness is the overriding principle of the Bible. And it's the underlying characteristic of God. And Numbers 35 tells us that since the land of Canaan was divinely set apart for God's people and it was the exclusive property of God, then the holiness of the land was of paramount concern because God dwelled with His people there. If the land became too defiled, God would not be able to remain among His people. But one of the worst possible defilements of the promised land, or any land really, was that caused by innocent human blood being shed upon it. Thus, according to the Torah, the murderer's sin could not be atoned for by a sacrifice of an innocent animal. Rather, only the murderer's own guilty life could satisfy the requirement and thus cleanse the polluted land. Well, the story of Saul and his family unjustified uh, story of Saul and his family that unjustifiably killed certain residents of Gibeon is not even to be found in our Bibles. Okay? In fact, the only mention in any record of such a massacre is right here, 2 Samuel chapter 21. Now, what's also important to know is that these particular residents of Gibeon who were killed were not Hebrews. They were Amorites. And these particular Amorites had made a peace treaty with Israel that went all the way back to the days of Joshua. But what complicated the matter is that they had made this peace treaty through deceit. Now let's go back and read about when this happened. Turn your Bibles to Joshua chapter 9. Joshua chapter 9. 
And we're going to read just first oh, 18 verses. Joshua chapter 9. Uh, page 250 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. When all the kings of the west side of the Jordan in the hills and the Shephelon all along the shore of the great sea that fronts, the, fronts Lebanon, the Hittites, Amorites... Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites heard what happened. They joined forces to fight together against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they developed a clever deception. They made themselves look as if they'd been on a long journey by putting old sacks on their donkeys and taking used wineskins that had burst and been mended back together. They put old parched sandals on their feet and dressed in worn out clothes and took as provisions nothing but dried up bread that was crumbling to pieces. And then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the men of Israel, Oh, we've come from a country far away. Now make a covenant with us. And the men of Israel said to the Hivites, How do we know that you don't live here among us? If you do, we don't want to make a covenant with you. But they answered Joshua, Oh, we're your servants. And Joshua asked, Who are you? Where did you come from? They answered him, Your servants have come from a very distant country because of the reputation of Adonai your God. We have heard reports about him. Everything he did in Egypt... Everything he did to the two kings of the Amorites across the Jordan, Sichon, king of Heshbon, Og, the king of Bashan at Ashtarot. So our leaders and all the people living in our country said to us, take provisions with you for the journey. Go meet them. Say to them, we're your servants. Make a covenant with us. Here, here's the bread which we took for our provisions. It's still, it was still warm when we took it out of our homes the day we left to come to you. Now look at it. It's dry. It's crumbs. And these wineskins were new when we filled them. Look, now they're all torn. Likewise, these clothes of ours, our shoes are all worn out because of our very long journey. And the men sampled some of the food but didn't seek the advice of Adonai. So Joshua made peace with them, made a covenant with them to spare their lives. And the leading officials of the community swore to them. But three days later, after they had made the covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors, that they lived there with them. The people of Israel traveled and arrived at their cities on the third day, and their cities were Gibeon, Kephira, Beiroth, and Kiriat Yarim. And the people of Israel did not attack them, because the leading officials of the community had sworn to them by Adonai, the God of Israel. But all the community grumbled against their leaders. Well, what makes this so complex? is that not only did the Amorites completely misrepresent who they were, but verse 4 explains that when the Amorites asked for such a treaty, Joshua and his elders did not bother to consult with God about it. And there's the key. In other words, they didn't go to the high priest by means of either Lot's or the Urim and Tumim and inquire of God what they ought to do. The end result is that in their own minds, making this treaty made good sense. 
What could possibly be the harm? But then they discovered they'd been duped. So does it matter that the people who pled for the treaty came deceitfully or are the Israelites stuck with it no matter the circumstances? Let me reread. Let me go a little further here in Joshua. Three more verses, 18 through 21. The people of Israel did not attack them because the leading officials of the community had sworn to them by Adonai, the God of Israel, but all the community grumbled against their leaders. However, the leaders replied to the whole community, but we have sworn to them by Adonai, the God of Israel. We can't touch them. Here is what we will do to them. We will let them live so that God's anger will not be on us because of the oath we swore to them. Yes, let them live. The leaders continued, but let them chop wood and draw water for the whole community. The bottom line, we'll end with this, is that since Joshua and the elders had not bothered to consult God, but did vow an oath of peace in Jehovah's name, there's no going back on it. This would be for sure what we might call a rash vow. But it's still an official vow nonetheless. And barring the Amorites disavowing this oath of peace or attacking Israel or some such thing, the peace treaty and the accompanying vow was permanent. It was irrevocable. However, as a punishment for their deceit, Joshua made the Amorites woodchoppers and water drawers, in other words, forced laborers. But as it turned out, doing this effort for the whole community of Israel, to them, meant doing it for the tabernacle. That's right. What should have been a privileged job performed exclusively by Levites, sanctified Levites, was now being performed by non-Hebrews at the very tabernacle of God. Wood for the holy altar fire, living water for ritual purification, was being obtained by pagans. We're going to continue this next time.